So this whole section in between 1 and 3, Paul is very intentionally stopping his prayer and he's introducing us to now a, a subject that he just breaks forth like out of nowhere. He just breaks forth into this, this point. And he's going to now introduce us to this. Why God's power should be working towards us in Christ. Why does God's power have to work towards us? Brethren, why did God's power have to be so great towards you? Why did it have to be so great in Christ? And this is where we got to start today. Brethren, this is where we also need to kind of stop and take into consideration everything that we're going to hear. Because what we are going to hear is of immeasurable good news for you. And amen to that. But brethren, it's going to be contrasted with this morning immeasurable bad news. And that's why the good looks so great. It's because Paul is going to bring in unmeasurable bad news for all of you. But for the Christian, it comes with immeasurable good news. Brethren, this helps us to understand that this grand display of what we just went through in chapter 1, that's all it really was. It was a grand display of everything in Christ in a prayer. That's all the theology we've covered so far. That this love in Christ has to be put upon this black drop of our sin, our rebellion against God who's made us and saved us. So brethren, it's, it's like God has taken this great salvation that we have and he wants you to recognize it. And I always love this imagery. I'll use it till the day I die. Brethren, it's just like this beautiful dawning of the day of the sun rising and there is light and there is hope. Brethren, for that to be of any comfort to you, of any good news, you have to recognize that there was night that was dark as can be and you were stuck in night and you had no hope of a dawn coming for you. There was no promise. There was no king. In your current, in your former state, you had no hope that the night would break and the dawn would come. And that's where you found yourself. You found yourself enwrapped in a thick Egyptian night, as we just sang. And you had no hope. And that's where we have to begin. Because Paul brings us back there. He brings us right back there. But, brethren, we won't end there. And praise God, we won't end there today. We won't end there because God didn't end there. So we're going to work through verses 1 through 9 today. I'm going to just divide this up into two sections. It could really be divided up into three, but I divided it up into two. So verses 1 through 3 and then verses 1, or excuse me, 4 through 9. So verse 1 through 3, verses 4 through 9. And in this first section, Paul is going to speak like this, and it's going to set up our first point for us. I'm just going to combine phrases here. It's, I'm not going to follow the verse um, accurately. Paul's going to break up his first section here like this. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. And then he's going to end by nature, children of wrath with the rest of mankind. So that'll be our first point. And then in light of this, in light of this plight of death, we could call it, in 4 through 9, he's going to contrast it with this. Being made alive together with Christ. That's our main verse of the whole section. And ends with, by grace, you have been saved. So those are going to be the two points we're going to look at. Not very complicated. Not a, huge, uh, not a huge outline this morning. So let's look right there at this first section, verses 1 through 3. Brother, we need to understand this. I, re- I really want us this morning to get a... A feel for this afresh. As Nick even talked about, and I thought it was really fitting that he did it this Wednesday. Brethren, it is so easy for us to pass over the truth about who we used to be that it ceases to make any impact on us anymore. And brethren, I'll be the first to admit this has happened to me. Of knowing gospel truth and yet it doesn't have any effect upon me. It has ceased to be a reality that I remember, and it has just become a theological fact that I have in my brain to preach to other people. But brethren, you ask yourself, why did Paul break mid-prayer to introduce this point? 
Because he wanted this reality to be brought to bear for the Christian. To remember, yes, everything in Christ is yours. Yes, it's amen, right? It's yes, yes, let it be so. But it was at such a great cost because your plight was so dark. So let's begin here. Let's read this section and we're going to take this thing. We are going to take verses 1 through 3 piece by piece. So here's the section, verse 1 through 3. Brethren, listen, this, is, this, this was you. Don't think about sinners out there. This was you. And you, this is really you all, were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this age following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Brethren, this was your great plight in life. Do you recall it? Do you recall your former reality to mind as you remember what God has done for you? Because that's exactly what Paul wants to do. In light of your new reality, he thinks we ought to reflect upon our old one. We ought to do so. I mean, he sticks it there for a reason. And brethren, you go read Colossians. You go read Philippians. You go read Romans. You go read all of these Paul's letters. And he does it over and over and over again, brethren, to remind us. Not not to scorn us. Not to make us think that we're somehow, we're still the wretch we were in the past. But to remind you of now... Uh, that, that what you are now, brethren, is, uh, is of such great importance and reality because of what you used to be. Do you remember what it was like before you had God in the world? Do you remember what it was like to be dead in your sins and your trespasses, brethren? Our life as Christians, we need to be marked out and remembered as, as people who always stand at the forefront as God's people, God's inheritance, God's cherished ones, but with the backdrop that at one time we were not. At one time, we were not God's cherished people. At one time, you were not God's loved ones. You were not God's saints. And it was like that section there in in Deuteronomy 6, right before the people are told to remind their their sons of what God's done for them. He tells them, listen, you're going to go into the land and you're going to get all these things you didn't work for. Do not forget the Lord your God. Take care lest you forget. And brethren, we need to do this as well. I think that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, lest you forget. You've been given this great inheritance of Ephesians 1. Do not become pretentious. Do not become pretentious upon the mercy and the grace of God. You need to remember lest you forget. Brethren, lest we grow cold. And so here's how Paul strikes a blow for us so that we don't get cold in this area. He's going to do it with three key elements in this passage. And each verse is a key element for us. So here's the first one. First, he says this. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, just think of that that first description of you, brethren. You were dead. That's what the sinner is apart from Christ. He's dead. He's absolutely dead. Now, people have a hard time thinking about this because we look around and we see people walking around us, brethren. They have air in their lungs and they're walking on their legs and we think, well, they look alive. Well, brethren, here's what the Bible says about every single person. They may have a heartbeat. They may have air in their lungs and they may be thinking in their mind. But apart from Christ, dead. They're as good as dead. And that was you. You are as good as dead. In fact, brethren, it doesn't just say you are as good as dead. You were dead. Though you had breath in your lungs and were walking upright, you were dead. That's how God saw you, dead. And not just to one another, to Him. Dead to Him. Absolutely dead to God. But He builds off that. How are you dead? Dead in what? So let's slow down. And let's see how Paul, and he's going to do this every verse, he will build on the intensity of your deadness. 
Brethren, listen, I am not intending to do this to make you feel like dirt this morning. We need to just take the scripture for what it says this morning. And we need to come to terms with it and agree with it. Amen. The Bible says it. We believe it. Are we not those kind of people? We are. I hope we are. Let's be those kind of people. So let's slow down. Let's see how he builds upon this. You were dead. And notice how Paul describes how you were formerly dead. He says that you were dead in trespasses and sins. So, brethren, you weren't just dead in some generic sense. There were some particular things that made you dead. Trespasses and sins. Now, what are those two things? (laughs) Right, you read those things. You ever stop to think, what's a trespass? What's a sin? What are those things? Right? And, and I know in a general concept, everyone knows what a sin is. Right? It's when we disobey God in something on a very generic level, disobedience to God. But I want us to stop and I want us to think about those two phrases because it will really, brethren, it will just add to the intensity of what he says when he says, you were dead. So listen, brethren, if I the sin's probably easier, but if I ask you what's a trespass, I may not get a lot of definitions in here. And I'll be honest with you, brethren, that's okay. We don't pay particular attention to some of these words. But I think Paul is he's using two words. I don't think he's trying to communicate two different ideas, but he's really trying to convey in all of your rebellion, in all of your sin, what did it look like? And he's going to use these two phrases to paint for you what it looks like. So here's the first one. So a trespass, but it's just kind of like how the word sounds. If you trespass on someone's property, it means you've crossed an established line, right? We know this at the abortion clinic. It really sucks, right? But if we cross a certain line out there, we're just going to have to take it as trespassing, whether we want to or not. But it's because we're crossing a line. And so a trespass is it, it, it's to transgress something. It means to violate something. There is a law in place. God has said, you shall not eat. Or God has said, you shall not murder. Or God has said, you shall not steal. And you look at the line and you go, doing it anyway. You transgress that law. You violate that law. The standard is there and you say, forget the standard. Stepping right over that thing. I do not care. That's what a transgression is. And so... If you've committed a transgression, it means you've, you've, you've trespassed. You, and, and brethren, this is what he says. You were dead in trespasses. You were dead in this kind of thing. There was lines laid down, brethren. And listen, you willfully, you willfully crossed them. I mean, brethren, you think about that. And, 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 and try, to, try to bring it closer to home as best as we can. Brethren, that is like when my, I, I lay a rule down for my kids and my kid looks at me and sees the line I just put down and they say, and it's just willful. Brethren, that's what you were dead in. Willful, transgression, violation. God says, don't go over the line. And you said, what are you going to do about it? That's what you said to God. You transgressed. But brethren, more than that, You sinned. And while sin is related to transgression, they're not unrelated to one another. Sin can be used in a much broader sense, right? Sin can can speak of not only transgression of violating some kind of stipulation or law. It can just refer to to rebellion in general. And, and, And not only just rebellion, but in the Bible, sin is often portrayed as in rebellion to a king, rebellion to a lord. So this isn't just... Rebellion in some generic kind of sense. This is looking at God who is the creator and the sovereign and saying, I will rebel against you, which brethren in turn makes you a traitor because you owe that allegiance to the one who is sovereign. You owe your allegiance to Jesus and, and, and the father, whether you want to or not, you owe it to him to do so. And so sin is going, I will not. I will rebel against you. I will not have you as king. I will not have you as God, even though he made you. And so it's a little bit broader than this, brethren. It is simply a traitor acting in rebellion against his authority. And you can hear Paul bring this distinction out in um, in Romans 5. Paul says this in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, 
so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, right? So he's just making this contrast. Sin comes into the world through Adam, and it starts to affect all people. But then notice what he says. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. He means the the law given to the people, right? The law given to the, the, the Israelites. He says, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And then he says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So Paul is making this distinguishing here. There was sin in the world, and, and sin wasn't counted like it was with Adam, who transgressed God's law. What, did, what, what law did, did Adam transgress in the garden? Yeah, don't eat. God said, lime. Don't cross it. And Adam and Eve went, we're going to cross it. Transgression. And so there's this, there, there's this tension here that Paul's dealing with. He says, well, sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin was not counted where there was no law. And yet, he still sees that death is spreading from Adam all the way down to Moses, even over those whose sinning wasn't like Adam, right? How many people in the world sinned who, who sinned who was not like Adam, who didn't have a commandment straight from God that they broke? Brethren, most people for all time did not have God's strict commandments, God's law, God, God, God's stipulations. And yet death still spread because men still rebelled. So, brethren, though, though these two things are somewhat contrasted in the scriptures, Paul is simply coming right here and just combining them both together. And he says, you all, this is how you were dead. You were dead in sins and trespasses or transgressions. Brethren, and listen, this is what we got to remember right here. It was real and it was intentional and it was willing. It was real. You stepped over real boundary markers. You stepped over real stipulations. You really did look God in the face and say to hell with you. To your creator, you really did rebel as a traitor. That was a real thing that you did. Brethren, it was intentional. You wanted to. It was willingful. No one held a gun to your back to do it, brethren. That's how you were dead in these things. You did all of these things. And brethren, this is so important. Because this strikes at the heart of man who wants to make excuses for all sorts of things that they do. You were not one who simply made a bad decision or a bad mistake or at one time just had a bad call in judgment. That is not the Bible's portrayal of you before Christ. And Paul is absolutely decimating that idea that, hey, you just had made a bad call one time. Hey, you just had a bad intention one time. Brethren, we need to believe and come to terms with this reality. What we desired most before Christ what we carried out in our lives as our, as our chief desire was nothing but wanting to be a traitorous rebellion, a rebeller against God. That's it. We have to come to terms with that. We cannot make excuses for it because God is the one who says this. This is not man's opinion. This is, man, this is God's opinion of you. This is God's declaration of us before Christ. And brother, not only did he say we did these things... He says we did them intentionally and we desired to do it. We crossed lines on purpose. We looked at God on purpose and said, no. We did it knowingly and willingly, brethren, from the heart. And this is what Paul says just right in this next verse to intensify this. Not only were you dead in trespasses and in sins, Oh, brethren, it wasn't even that you just did it one time or a few times. He adds to this by absolutely multiplying this reality to the infinite degree. We didn't only live in sin and rebellion, knowingly and willingly. Brethren, he says, you walked in it. You absolutely walked in it. And if you don't understand what that means, this is just a biblical phrase that gets used in the Bible. It's a metaphor to talk about one's way of life, your conduct. You think about the psalm we always read, Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But what does he walk in? He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Right, so you get this idea all throughout the Bible. What you walk in is your course of life. It is fundamentally who you are and what you do. And he says, not only did you do these things, you committed this trespass and this sin. Brethren, you walked in this because this was who you are. You walked in these things. You lived it. You loved it. It's who you were. It's who you were about. And it was the reality of the warning that we hear all the way back in Genesis 4 to Cain. Sin's crouching at the door. What does it want of Cain? It wants to rule him. And guess what, brethren? It did, and it ruled over you too. The question came down to mankind, and guess what? Mankind failed. Sin had its dominion. It was standing ready at the door, and it pounced, and it got what it desired. All of you. It caught everybody. Nobody escaped from this thing. Brethren, we walked in it, which means it had complete domination over you. You walked in it. This was who you are. It was your way of life. But then he adds to it even more. (laughs) Brethren, you didn't just walk in it as though your only plight was that sin was produced in your heart. That's bad enough, right? I mean, at this point, does anyone just feel like, man, this is heavy to to think about this again. I transgressed and I sinned. I was dead. Not only did I do those things, I walked in this as my course of life. And Paul is like, that's not bad enough. The backdrop's not black enough. Brethren, it wasn't just that you walked in this and that your plight, therefore, was, oh, sin was produced in your heart and you just loved walking into it. That is true. Sin was produced in your heart. Brethren, you loved it. But he goes further than this in verse 2. He tells us that the origin and control of your sinning is much deeper than you think. The origin and control of your life goes much deeper than you realize. And it goes much further than simply sin spawning in your heart and you loving it. Brethren, he's going to tell you, you were under a power much worse than even your own heart. (laughs) And what does the Bible say about the heart? Who can trust it? Utterly deceitful. And he says, "That's that's not even bad enough. Not only were your heart was a fountain of corruption... He says, man, you weren't even, you, the control was way beyond yours. It was way beyond your control. And brethren, this here, I want you to listen to this. This is a reality within the church we need to desperately remember and we need to reclaim for ourselves. Our former lives of sin and rebellion were not just personal and did not just well up in your heart like a spring coming forth. Brethren, here was the reality that he paints for you there in verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this age. So here's this reality. We were under supernatural, spiritual forces of darkness. I mean, does that not intensify the problem even more? Brethren, it was already steep. We trespassed knowingly. We sinned knowingly, rebelled. We walked in it. And then he says, it's much worse than this. You were under spiritual, supernatural forces of darkness outside of your total control. You didn't have a bit of control over these powers. He says, yes, you walked in sin and rebellion. Yes, because you loved it. But you also did so under the dark power and the control of forces outside of you and beyond you. In which you once walked, hear this, following the course of this age, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Brethren, there was dark, evil, supernatural power behind why you did what you did, behind the way that you walked. We do not live in a mechanical world. We live in a spiritual, supernatural world with things that go on beyond your imagination, beyond what you can see. And he tells you, even in your former life, oh, brethren, there was something reigning over you and controlling you that you wouldn't even be able to catch a whiff of. And yet it was there. Brethren, it's like we had a spell on us. We were under this spell. We were under some 
dark magic, some power that had been cast over us, corrupting us, making us walk under its spell. And yet, you know what? The Bible never gives you excuse to say, hey God, I was just under the power of this spell. I was just under the course of this world. You know what he says? And you loved it. You walked according to the course of this world. Oh, brethren, you were under the spell and you said, give me more of it. We walked in accordance with this thing. And notice how he fleshes this out. So he references something in here that I think we we can forget and kind of miss here in the text. That, brethren, there is this spiritual world here. Notice what he says there in verse 2. He says, And what you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of, and he says, of the air. That's a weird phrase. Who's the prince of the air? Have you ever said that? Hey, there goes goes the, the, the ruler of the air. Or the prince of the air. And you're thinking air, like like I breathe in and out like air. And here Paul is, he is, he is diving into a subject that these people in Ephesus would, all, would, would know too well. I mean, go back to Acts. I think it's what, Acts 19? Ephesus? Yeah, I'm getting a, a yes. I was looking for you for confirmation too. We'll say Acts 19, right? In Acts 19, and you go read the, a couple chapters. You read about what some of these people, what are they, what, what, what is... What's happening there in Ephesus? What are these people delving in? What are they deep in? What are they rooted in? What are these Ephesian people rooted in? Brethren, they're they're rooted in idolatry, but it's not just stone statues or metal statues. Brethren, it's magic and sorcery and animism and spirit, and they're worshiping spirits and all these different things. And the gospel comes, and it begins to turn this world upside down for them. So when Paul says, you followed the prince of the power of the air... He has in mind the air in those days would have meant the spiritual unseen world, brethren, where spirits dwell. Now, whatever you want to call them, demons, or I think as the Bible calls them, sometimes refers to them as gods or powers. Brethren, there was a realm out there that Satan ruled over, and that was your domain. You had powers controlling you, and you had powers influencing you that you did not see. And brethren, these people were steeped in dark arts, magic. Brethren, calling upon these spiritual beings. And now here's what, here's what Paul's telling them. He says, yes, you were enslaved in sin and death to the ruler of these old spiritual beings and powers. Even Satan himself, the ruler of all of these powers. I mean, you think about the irony of that. These people thought they were giving, you know, they, they were giving good worship to these gods, not realizing that they were really following the prince of the power of the air, and it was to their own doom. It was to their own destruction. Brethren, they were following the prince of the power of the air, and he says that about you. I mean, brethren, that's, that was the reality. Powers in the unseen realms that you worshiped that you loved, that you lived for. And maybe it wasn't a statue. Maybe it didn't have a name upon it. But brethren, whether it's money or whether it's a gold statue, I'll tell you what, there's a power behind money when you love money. There's a power behind greed that you may not see that is behind it. Brethren, there is power behind everything in this world that you see. And you remember, we live in a supernatural world and that was what you were enslaved to. Brethren, the greatest enemy of God and his people, Paul looks at all of us and he says, you walked in accord with him. You guys were like this, in one accord, walking the course of that age. You walked with the father of lies. You walked with the murderer from the beginning. Brethren, you followed him and you know what he did for you? He dominated you. And brethren, that's the reality of every sinner. Every person apart from Jesus Christ, that is the stone-cold reality. It was the one you were in, which means your thoughts, your actions, your desire, your passions, your whole being was wrapped up in sin and in death, and you loved it. You were under the power of supernatural forces, and you followed Satan standing. And brethren, listen, this is important. You stood against God. It's not that you ran away from God. Brethren, you turned around, ran away, and then turned back and stood at war with Him. You followed a prince, a ruler. This is getting contrasted with chapter 1. Christ being made ruler over all things, putting everything underneath His feet. Well, there's a ruler of the prince of the power of the air that stands opposed to that king of kings. And you were with Him in battle, arrayed to go against God. 
And yet that's not enough. Paul's going to cap it off here and crescendo it with one more thing. And he says right there in verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I mean, brethren, what a way to make you feel the weight of that. Your inheritance as a child of the devil was wrath. Notice how he's contrasting that with what came before. Your glorious inheritance in Christ. Well, when you were a child of wrath, that was your destiny, was wrath. Your end goal, what was being produced for you. And brethren, you imagine this. And this is the thing that ought to shake us to the core. That people live their whole life outside of Christ. And you know what it's for to destine them to? Wrath. And it doesn't matter how good it looks in this life. Apart from Christ, wrath. Destination, wrath. Being poured out for them, wrath. Their inheritance, nothing but wrath. There is no good end to the story. No matter how great their story is in this life. And brethren, that was for us. It didn't matter if you were living in slums before you were a Christian or living up in Summerlin before you were a Christian. Brethren, your end was still wrath. What was going to be poured out upon you was wrath. You were a child. That was your inheritance. Your father, the devil, that's what he had for you. A treacherous father. This was mankind's plight, brethren. And you think about that again there in Romans and Corinthians. In Adam, all die. Brethren, that's what we had in Adam. We became children of wrath by our very nature. This is something the world does not want to believe. Even Christians don't want to believe this truth. But brethren, the Bible says it. By your very nature, brethren, God looked at you with wrathful scorn. As your end goal and your destiny was to have His wrath outpoured upon you. And I think this is hard for us to think, brethren, because we think, because the culture has taken the good things of Christianity and just said, oh, we can be pretentious and presume it. Brethren, everyone in this country thinks when they die, they're going to heaven. They didn't get that from nowhere. And you know what, brethren? Here's the thing we need to remember about our former lives. I remember, I remember, you know, I've told some of you now who are newer in here, my own testimony, heard your testimony. Brethren, you think about before that decisive moment happened, whether it was in the blink of an eye and you were changed or whether it was over the course of a year or two years, before that change took place, you really had a real destiny of wrath upon you. You had a real end of being under the judgment of God. This was your plight. You were not going to end your life in sunshine and rainbows like everyone tells you you're going to do. You were not going to die and ride off into the sunset and go meet God in the sky. Brethren, you were destined for his wrath when you died. There was no magical change of circumstances that was going to come up because you sang a pretty song in a book or a movie. Brother, nothing could change it. Nothing could change it. It was, you were born, destiny was already laid out for you as a child of wrath. It was laid out for you. You could do nothing to change it. There is no story you could write to make yourself feel better about it, brother. And your end was that. It was set for you. It was supposed to tell you and make you feel the absolute hopelessness and despair that you ought to feel. You were set to receive and inherit wrath, brethren. And you think about how the Bible speaks of this, brethren. This wrath, it's pure, it's unmitigated, it is undiluted, it is fierce, and it is as pure as fire. Exodus fifteen seven. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries, the Egyptians. You send out your fury and it consumes them like stubble. Brethren, did any Egyptian walk up on shore? They did not. They were all consumed, brethren. It was, an un, it was a consuming fire, an unquenchable fire with no one left to stand. Psalm 21, 19. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will consume them. Brethren, none will escape. Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Brethren, none left to stand. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. And another angel... A third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, 
he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night, they, these worshipers of the beast and its image, brethren, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Revelation six fifteen to 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Brethren, that's your plight. That's where Paul brings you back again. He brings you back to your plight. So that you would ask the question of yourself again. Who can stand? Who could save us? I mean, brethren, it would, you think you, you could escape, you could find some loophole, but, and he builds upon that list to tell you, no, no, there's no way out of this. There's zero way out of this. But by one way. And this comes to our second point. Which here in verse 4, brethren, it just, it comes in such power and in such simplicity. But God. That towering list stands against you, and the only answer to the question, who can stand, who can save us, brethren, but God. If God did not do something for us, brethren, you would forever be lost. But notice what he says right here, because it's much better than just but God. Okay, but God, what? Look at verse 4, what he says. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Brethren, Paul still has not gotten to his main action of this whole section, but he wants to couch it already for you to tell you he's building up to why God saved us. Why did he do it? How did he do it? What on earth could come in and bring you out of that predicament, brethren? It's like the question is asked, who can change the leopard's spots? Who can possibly do such a thing? Who can save the sinner if that list stands before him? And he says, oh, but God, because of being rich in mercy and because of his great love of which he loved us. Brethren, here's our first lesson. God did this and is telling you that he decided to do it because he decided to do it. Brethren, God did this because of his... This is such an interesting phrase. I, I don't even really know how to explain it besides to just give you the phrase and say, Lord, help them to meditate upon the phrase. It's just such a weird phrase. Because of the great love which he loved us. Well, what's the great love? Well, it's his mercy. His, in his mercy, because of the great love of which he loved us. Brethren, to point back to that and to say, well, here's what it's all encompassed in. Here's what this love is, brethren. He doesn't just, he doesn't explain it. It's this, it's this incomprehensible idea, but he does tell us something. It was love. God's great love, which he loved us, is what prompted God in mercy to act upon your behalf. And brethren, it was due solely to the fact that God himself, not you, was rich in mercy. And it was according to his great love and not yours. God looked down on you and he loved you because of his great love and mercy. Brethren, listen, nothing else moved God. Nothing. We did not force him. We did not strong arm him. We did not earn this thing as he's going to say later. God simply shed his mercy due to his abundant love. Brethren, I love this because God wasn't even being arbitrary here. He wasn't just like, nah, I guess I'll save some sinners today. Whatever the abundant love is, brethren, I don't care. <laughs> I just know that God in His abundant love loved us. And that should be good enough for us. But it also, brethren, should cause you to know that this is actually great news. That God was rich in mercy towards you in His abundant love. 
You want this kind of thing. You don't want God acting on your behalf because you had something special in you or because you prompted God to be able to do so, brethren. You don't want that kind of thing because then God's saving work is grounded in something lesser, something of, of lesser value, something of lesser glory. Brethren, it was grounded in Him. His abundant love is why He saved you. But even more than this, even more than this, here He's going to just... Just like he built our sin up for us, he's going to build up what he just did for us in Christ. Being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. Doesn't even get to the thing that the main verb yet. He says, even when we were dead in trespasses and in sin. Brethren, God's love came down upon you before you could even think to think about God. Before you even thought about your sin. Brethren, you were dead in it, which means we were doing what? We were out there strolling and walking and loving our sin. And then God loved us. That's when he began to love you. And then he gets to the main point. The heart of how God has loved us in doing this. Brethren, God did not send you an inspirational message to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He didn't give you a postcard. God's not sending positive energy your way. Brethren, God sent his son. God loved you as he states here and made us alive together with Christ. You were dead and walking in rebellion, hating him, loving your filth, marching with the prince of the power of the air. And God made you alive. His great love was shown to you by simply him telling you, Sergio, live. Kyle, live. Nick, live. And brethren, guess what? You lived. Who can do that? Who can look at the enemy? The one by nature is a child of wrath and say, live, and he lives. Brethren, this is the great reality of the Christian life. And this is foundational to what it means to even be a Christian. You went from being dead towards God to alive towards God because God said it. And brethren, here's the important thing the important key in all this. This can and only does happen in Jesus Christ, the reigning Messiah. No others, not even just other religions, no work can be looked at for this kind of thing. It must be Christ and it must be, as we sing, in Christ alone. It is Him and all of Him that we look to to know we've been made alive. And Paul tells them this that, listen, because Paul says this in other places, of what our future hope will be like. We just quoted in our, um, our confession in Romans 8. But notice here, Paul, he just obliterates the future hope and just says, this is a current reality for you in Christ. He has made you alive. This is a past tense thing. God has done it. You are now alive. Which is such a weird thing to think, because what did he do when he made Christ alive? He raised him from the dead. But brethren, don't think because your body hasn't been raised to dead and you haven't died yet that something didn't happen. Brethren, probably the harder reality happened. He took a child of wrath, a sinner bent on rebellion and said, live. And it was, it was just like you were made alive coming up from the grave. But more than this, brethren, more than this, God is not just declaring something over you in this section. He's not just saying, you're made alive in Christ, but then you walk the way that you used to walk. Brethren, this is actually something God has done for you. When he says, God made us alive with Christ, that's a true reality that has actually taken place in the life of the Christian. Just as you really were walking, brethren... When he says you were walking in trespasses and sins, that wasn't theoretical. You were doing those things. That was what you breathed, you lived in. And now the glorious reality of this, if you've been made alive in Christ, you really do walk in love and faith now. Not like you used to walk. There's a real reality, a living and breathing reality that I walk in accordance and in faith to Jesus Christ. Something real and absolutely dramatic has taken place, brethren. That should be the experience and the reality. The Christian should be able to know, I went from serving one master to the other. 
Whereas Paul says, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the glorious light of his son. Brethren, we should know that because something really did happen. We were, we really, really, we were united to Jesus Christ in his life and we really were made alive. Just as real as it will be when our bodies are raised from the dead, so too your spiritually dead heart was really made alive. And you go, I'm alive. Otherwise, brethren, we're saying Christ was really not raised because that's the logic. If we're made alive in Christ, just as Christ was raised from the dead, brethren, never let the Christian faith be one of mere lip service. There's a real reality that has taken place and it is as dramatic as a dead man getting out of his grave and coming up out of the grave. So too was your spiritual resurrection, brethren. It was just as dramatic as that. And yet there's more. God has made us alive and this means, brethren, this means more than life from sin. This means, brethren, a change in your being and your status. God really has made you new, which means your status is new now. This is what he says in the next couple of verses, 6 through 7. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Brethren, listen, in Christ everything in your life is made new everything about it you are not who you were you are not what you once were you don't carry the same status you don't carry the same desires their declaration upon you is not the same brother everything's different about you you have a different declaration from god you have a different name now no longer a child of wrath but a child of the living god brethren and it also says you weren't just delivered from your sin now you walk in accordance with the spirit of god and you've been raised up into the heavenly places i mean brethren he is just trying to get through your mind everything has been made different for you and you need to now realize that in christ it's as if i am seated next to jesus and now everything that is now presently his is mine and what a message that sinners need brethren People who don't even know their right hand from the left in our day and age, brethren, don't know who they are. They don't even know how they've been made, brethren. And this right here for the Christian makes abundantly clear. Quit thinking about who am I in? Who am I in this world? What's my plan? What's my prison? What am I supposed to do? Brethren, know this reality. This is who you are now. This is who God has made you to be now. But then he says this in the next phrase. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Brethren, I love this contrast right here. Because before this, he's already marked out the age that he says it is present and that the spirit is of, of, of Satan is working in these sons of disobedience. And he says... That may seem like a great time where Satan has, has, has uh, controlled the sons of disobedience and had his way with them. But now, in light of the gospel of being made alive in Christ, he says that this, these coming ages, not just an age, brethren, but there's all these coming ages. Now that in Christ, God's kindness, rather than Satan's cruelty, will be proclaimed among people and recounted by people. Where he says, God's love and immeasurable riches are not bound up, brethren, I love this, for one age. It's not like God just saves for a time and he gets his little time in history and then the rest is, is the devil's, brethren. He is undoing the prince of the power of the air so that for all the ages to come, brethren, it's going to be recounted by all the people who are made alive in Christ how immeasurable his riches are in Christ. Christ, brethren, then has forever shifted where we're going in history. It's going to be recounted for the ages, the immeasurable riches of his grace. So, brethren, this leads us to our last point in this crescendo here of Paul stating for us what now has been done in light of our plight. So here's what he says in 8 through 9. The one we all know, right? <laughs> one of the first verses you ever memorize as a Christian. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And brethren, this is the principal key 
to understanding and living the Christian life and having a Christian worldview to think Christianly about everything. Everything in your life. Everything that God does. All of it and all of it forever and ever has only ever been given and will only ever be given by grace. It is the overriding principle of all of history. All of it and ever only all of it will come and has come to you by grace. You remember that. It is by grace you have been saved to such a glorious inheritance in the saints. Brethren, it's all grace and it's all grace for the rest of time, for the rest of life. And that's that passage we read there in Deuteronomy 6. That's why he reminds them of this. When the Lord God brings you into the land with great and good cities you did not build, houses full of good things you did not fill, cisterns you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, when you eat and you're full, the inheritance that was there in the land, brethren, the inheritance that you have in Christ, take care lest you forget who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Brethren, we got to remember the principle that throughout all the Bible, it's ever only been and ever will be by grace that God's people get God and enjoy everything from God. It is all of grace. Brethren, pretension in this matter, thinking that you can merit something by just simply claiming it, is a destroyer of people. It's a destroyer of Christians. And brethren, when we begin to think that way, that who we are, what we have become, somehow it's ours and it's ours alone for the taking, something we can boast in, as if you've merited this thing, brethren, you've entirely missed the point of grace. All of what you have, all that you are in Christ is of pure and undiluted grace. It is nothing but grace. And brethren, this is not to, meant to knock you down so that you can't claim what is yours in Christ. It's, brethren, this is to give you proper perspective, which is why he, why he has to put it in here. He has to follow it up with for, right? Because you have all these great things in Christ. But then he says, for by grace you have been saved. And this links up with verse 5. All have been made alive, or you have been made alive in Christ. This is the grace that has come upon you. And he's reminding you, for as by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not something that you brought about. And so he wants to give you proper perspective and proper direction of this. And so here's a few things as we close that I think he gives us in this section. One, brethren, this verse is so needed right here. And it needs to remain true. If we are to have if we were to boil down the Christian life to its most fundamental reality, it would just simply be the worship of God, the worship of Christ. But if we lose this principle, brethren, if God is going to proper, properly receive our devotion, He's going to properly receive our adoration and our praise and our worship, brethren, we have got to have this principle working through all of it, that everything that we have in Christ is by grace. Because, brethren, when the work of God begins to be diluted down to where you think you have some, you've earned some right, for what God has given you or you've earned some right before God and all of a sudden God's grace begins to be mixed up with merit brethren this happens every single time and it has in church history when the grace of God becomes diluted with the merit of men it always diminishes and lowers and, and messes with the glory and the work of God and salvation Brethren, it always leads the church in error. It always leads the Christian in error. And it does not cause us to remember the immeasurable riches of God towards us. Brethren, men are tempted to do this. We need to take care, like he says in Deuteronomy 6, lest we forget. Brethren, you're prone to forget because you, we don't take care. Let's take care of verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. All of it, brethren. All of grace. Second, we need to remember that grace comes to us through faith. 
You can be tempted to now do the second thing. Okay, I remember that. It's all on grace to flow to me. Now let me work for more of God's grace. Let me try to merit more of God's grace in the Christian life. Let me do all these things to earn God's favor with me. And he says, no, you forget that too. We need to remember that grace comes to us through faith. And yet, brethren, your faith is not some work you have to perform in order to inherit God's grace. Brethren, faith is simply the thing. It's the channel of which grace comes through. And he reminds us of that in this verse. He says in the second half of eight, and this, all of this, this salvation, this grace, this faith, all of this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Even the faith that you cling on to the promises of God with, not yours. Brethren, all grounds of boasting in the Christian life get decimated here. They go flying out the window. They really are like chaff that gets driven away by the wind. Grace comes down to us by faith, but he makes clear, brethren, oh, this grace comes with faith for you. It is a gift of God himself. Not only do you receive pure grace from God by faith, but faith itself is given to you by pure grace. It's reversed on both sides. And this is, brethren, this is insane. An enemy of God, the one who is dead in trespasses and sins, this is what God did in making you alive. He says, first, by grace you have been saved through faith. Brethren, he gave faith to an enemy who is standing ready to do battle with him. And all of it, brethren, is is found in Christ. None of it is yours to claim. So, brethren, remember, grace goes through all of it. And second, remember that it comes to you through faith, but even the faith itself is not of your own doing. This is something God's given to you. And, brethren, a third thing, as he's going to go on there in 9, not as a result of works. And this is, this is absolutely important for you to remember. Because you notice how he's contrasting these works now in this section. Where did we see works pop up earlier in this section? Well, we saw it pop up right here back in verse 2. He says, You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That is now at work. Same word. Now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the past. So and then those works get packed out. Satan himself was at work in you, and you were busy working out your passions in accordance with him. And so, brethren, before Christ, you were busy in works, in a lot of filthy and evil and wicked ones. And he's, and he's trying to remind you, connecting it back here, brother, not only were you saved by grace through faith, but none of this comes about through meriting or through work. That contrast is stark. When God made you alive in Christ, it was while you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were working all sorts of things in your life. It came even before then. So don't think now after becoming a Christian, now the good works come in to really continue my merit with God. He says none of it earned it. It didn't bring you into it. And brethren, it surely will not maintain the the favor and the merit with God. It didn't do anything for you to get in and earn merit. It won't do anything for you afterwards. I mean, that's the thing that Galatians are going through. What? You once now heard the gospel message, received the Spirit by faith, and now you want to perfect yourselves by works of the flesh? No, brethren, that's not how the Christian life works. Works didn't help you at all to get saved. Why would they help you after to stay saved? Brothers, because this thing is all of grace. It's not of works. God does something in the Christian and it's not established in works. Though it is established in the work of somebody, just not us. And fourth, brethren, this last thing that he leaves us with, so that, here's a purpose, so that no one may boast. I think you could put that in a positive way. So that all of our boasting would be all in God. <laughs> Brethren, that if we're going to boast about anything in the Christian life, if we're going to be anything of a boastful people, if I could put it that way, brethren, it's that nothing would ever come upon your lips about boasting in the Lord what He has done for you and boasting about all of it. 
And I mean all of it, brethren. It's not just, yes, God saved me. If everything in Christ is yours and it's yes and amen, brethren, when you get that house, when you get that job, when you get your children, when you get saved, whatever comes to you in life, whatever the Lord God gives you, the land, the vineyard, or the wine, or the fruitful land, whatever it is, brethren, you boast in Him. It's all His. It all flowed to you in grace. It all came to you by grace. It was all brought to you by grace. It was all established in grace. Brethren, it will only be kept by grace when you remember, I was once a slave. What I have now, I didn't somehow become, uh, uh, I didn't become the master's servant and then earn all these things to go, ha, look what I did now as a servant. Look at my accomplishments. Brethren, the servant always remember, I didn't build any of the things that I got. I didn't make any of the things that I've got. I didn't even earn them. Christ earned them. And he said, here you go. You get to enjoy all of them now as a co-heir. But you did not earn them, brethren. And this helps us to go, okay, my life, brethren. I mean, this does not shape everything. We're going to see this. Paul assumes this shapes everything as he gets into the last three chapters of this book. Brethren, worship, devotion, family, work, life. You put a category in there that I did not name and he claims it. It touches everything. This principle is not one to simply remember for your personal salvation. Brethren, it touches all of it. You think about your kids, don't you dare boast about what you have. You think about your wife, don't you dare boast about what you have. Brethren, if you want to boast, you boast in the Lord. You remember what He did for you in Christ. You remember that Christ secured those things for you, though you did not secure them for yourselves. So, brethren, as we close out here, I want us to recall that verse there in 5. Because you had no hope, your only inheritance was wrath. You were destined for it as a child and but God. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let's pray.